Welcome to the Hellraiser Podcast. Hello there, and here we are once again with the Hellraiser Podcast. I'm Peter, and this is Phil. Hello, everyone. Hi there. And today we're going to be talking about comics again, but this time talking about the Boom Studios' new set of Hellraiser comics, which came out last year, so they started in 2011. Now, we are going to be talking about the first eight issues of these comics, but we're going to split it over two podcasts because we've got a lot to say on each one. So this first one is going to be about issues one to four, which collectively bring together the story called Pursuit of the Flesh, parts one to four. So we're going to do those now, and then on the next podcast we're going to do parts five to eight, which are called Requiem. So these comics are written by Clive Barker and a chap called Christopher Monfett, and the art's by different people. We'll talk about that a bit later on. But this is very exciting for Hellraiser fans because it was the first time in a very long time that Clive Barker had actually written anything for the Hellraiser world. Yeah, and also a continuation of the kind of original Hellraiser story. Because it's actually a sequel of sorts, a sequel to Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. It carries on with the same characters that we saw in, in Hellraiser 2. It doesn't really touch on the later films, really, does it? No, and in a couple of cases it kind of suggests that the other films sort of don't exist. <laughs> They're not canon. No, a lot of people sort of say the f- other films don't exist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wish at least one of them didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you're quite right. This, I mean, this could make, I think this could make a really good film. <laughs> it would need a big budget, but this oh. story would be amazing if they were to film it now. I'd love it. If, if this was the script for the new Hellraiser film... But it wouldn't be the new new one with the, the dimension of making because that's a remake. It's supposed to be a remake of the original. And this is very much a sequel. And so this might alienate people that hadn't seen the first two films. See, I think that this, if this had come out as it is now, you know, as a new film, I think it would still be a bloody entertaining Oh, no, film. It would, yeah, it would be. It would be great. And you could sort of explain... You have to with explain a, a little bit more explanation... Are of Kirsty and that lot but yeah. I still think it would make a really good film anyway anyway we'll talk about let's, let's go let's crack straight into right so issue one Pursuit of the Flesh part one so we start off in Nebraska with this odd character who seems to be looking after a farmhouse and this guy's name is Samuel Hess so we meet him first of all we're not quite sure what's going on or who he is and then it seems that he's making he's forcing a young lady to open the puzzle box yeah, and I love this. What a brilliant start to the issue. You yeah. know, he's got, like, TV screens and computers, and he's got a little room underneath the farm mm-hmm. where she's in there, and she's got to open the box, and he's, like, looking at her through glass. Yeah, and he's making it. It doesn't really specify how long it takes her to open the box, but if it's sort of real time as you're looking down the page, she does it quite quickly <laughs> Yeah, again. Yeah, this is the magic of comics. Yeah, so, I mean, see, she could have been there for, you know, a couple of days. But she eventually does open the box, and then the Cenobites turn up. The original Cenobites from the first two films. You've got Pinhead, and the female Cenobite, and Chatterer. Mm. Butterball's not there at the moment, but uh, he will turn up later on. But it's so great immediately to see these original Cenobites again. It's like, here we are, we're back to basics, proper Hellraiser. This really excited me. Yeah, me too. I was really so happy to see Pinhead... And the crew doing what they do, you know, yeah. it was like almost like watching a new Hellraiser film, and I was really excited and happy. Especially because because you know them, you can hear how they speak, and you can hear their voices, and 
And the artwork is excellent in this issue. Yeah, it is. I really love it. It's really real, and they've really got the likenesses of the actors and the characters down. They have. It's very, yeah, it's very clever. It's very impressive. So, yeah, so they turn up and um, they... They do their usual hooks and chains and smash the girl apart. Yeah, but you get the sense here that Pinhead is not very happy. No, he gets. we get the feeling that he's a bit bored at the moment. Yeah, he's... Not quite bored enough to get his minions to kill him, like in No More Souls, but he is a bit fed up, and he even mentions that this girl isn't that good <laughs> as a victim. It's like, oh, here we go, another random flesh. Yeah, it's all become a bit tiresome. And he then says, you know, I require a new arrangement, I require something greater. Yes. Yeah, and I really like here that um, Samuel says, yes, your lordship... And the lady and the page. Yeah, they've so, given, he's given them names. Yeah, the so page is great. For that's chattering. awesome, and that's great because again, it's just a very small thing, but it hints at this whole history that this guy, this human guy, has had with them. You know, for them mm. to get him into service and you know have him do these things for them. Yeah, and he must have been doing this for years. Yeah, and he calls he must them have been into the ship for years. years. <laughs> Jesus Christ! <laughs> <laughs> but he um, calls them these things, and does that mean that they? They gave themselves these names, or did he just give them to them? Because it's not the kind of thing that he would turn up and say, "Hello, call me your lordship." Yeah, I'd, it might I'd, be like I'd... he just saw a man, a woman, and another, and he just called them Lord, Lady, and Page. Well, he obviously worships them, you know, as if they are mm. like the ruling class. And we're not quite sure at the moment what his motivation is. No, but he's certainly into his job because he gets a bucket of water and swills out the blood off the corpse and yeah but know. he's one of these human agents of the box or engineers as they're sometimes called as well so there you go and then we get back to hell yeah the proper the hell from hellbound so the escher style labyrinth and the leviathan up in the sky is a big diamond and i think this looks great because you've got blood fountains and you've got hundreds of naked people on spikes well this is exactly the bit you couldn't do nowadays in a film because you just need such a big budget this is kind of more what my mind was going to remember when we spoke about hellbound yeah. and i said it was just a lot of empty corridors mm-hmm. i think i wanted the empty corridors but also a bit of this yeah also rooms full of people riding on spikes and yeah fountains of blood i mean i don't <laughs> think that's unreasonable no i think everyone wants that <laughs> and then we get the idea that pinhead has basically sort of had enough and it's it's just sort of him and the female Cenobite talking and it's a bit sort of it's a bit tender now isn't it between the two of them as if there's some sort of love interest there I mean she's very much acting as if she you know loves him yeah there's definitely a relationship going on between them and I love all these hints here at stuff that's going on like she says um the female Cenobite says um you know the meddler has uh, sent some of our order into the abyss. Yeah, so and, that, yeah, talking about stuff that's happened on Earth. Yeah, so there's people on Earth who are getting rid of Cenobites, yeah. which is really cool. And Pinhead seems very unconcerned about this. Um, but yeah, they've got this relationship going on. She knows that he's going to make some kind of bargain, but she doesn't want him to. No, I know, yeah, they're off. he's off to somewhere very specific. He says, I seek the bellows. And mm. he sort of goes into this huge egg it's <laughs> like a huge like egg made of rock and then he has a chat with someone who we're not really sure who this is is it, it could be leviathan he's actually talking to i think that this is the representative of leviathan like you can't speak to leviathan directly 
and that's because he just goes <laughs> so you you speak to leviathan through this um huge organ with all yeah. these rotting bodies on it which is and a he's brilliant a, image he's playing the organ pinhead's playing the organ to speak to it and yeah the organ's made up of all these horrible rotting bodies that are sort of talking through them yeah this force whatever he is is talking through these bodies and i think that um basically what this thing was was once a cenobite who tried to become human mm. and failed and yeah. now he's got this ultimate punishment of being mm. this constantly in agony writhing organ that he that cenobites used to speak to leviathan yeah that's what that's what yeah, I think. yeah, yeah. That, yeah. that makes sense yeah uh, because, yeah, Pinhead uh, requires something new. He requires a new experience. He's done it all. He's seen it all. He's so bored. immediately, right at the very beginning, you're given this idea that Pinhead wants to become human. And you think, oh, this is interesting. Yeah, amazingly interesting. Yeah. Really, really We've never cool. had any hint of that in the films. And that's brilliant. I mean, you know, they've spoken a lot in the interviews of the films about how Pinhead looks kind of like he's done it all, mm. you know, and all of that. So you can get it through the performance. It works. And it but you works. never get the idea that he doesn't enjoy what he's doing anymore. No, absolutely. That so that's why this is great. would rather be human on Earth. You never get that. That's why this is a great continuation. Yeah. Because you've gone through all that and you've come to this point where he's had enough. So we find out that if Pinhead is to fail in this task, if he is allowed to try and become human but fails, then he'll be sent back to hell. But without any of his powers, he'll just be tortured forever and be set on fire. Yeah, it'd be Basically. horrible. So it'd be it's a huge risk, an absolutely huge risk, and he must provide a replacement yeah. for himself. Yeah. And he says who it is, but we don't get to know at this no. point. So He says it in between the pages. And uh, this organ thinks it's a jolly good idea. <laughs> yes, and says, oh, good, go off. Go off and make it gospel, he says. There's quite a lot of religious imagery throughout the comics. And then Pinhead all of a sudden pops up on Earth. Mm-hmm. And has a bit of a chat with Samuel. Yeah, he basically says he's uh, got a bit of a scheme going on and he needs him to help him. Uh, and there's loads of great images here. It's lovely to see Pinhead out in the day again, yeah. as we saw in Hellraiser 3, mm-hmm. uh, in a field of wheat or corn. Yeah. As uh, Samuel's burying the woman, I presume. From the beginning. Yeah. You'd think that, yeah. Which is a bit weird because... In the original Hellraiser, when you're taken to hell, your body isn't there anymore. That's happened to Frank. Yeah, I mean, but I it think... sort of implies that. I mean, Pinner did say, "Oh, who's this? Another? This is rubbish. She's just flesh, and she's not interesting." So maybe he just left her corpse lying on the floor. Well, I mean, there's a lot of things throughout these stories that you could sort of say mm, I don't know if that contradicts the rules or is that a bending mm. of the rules or something like that. I mean, Pinhead is here on Earth now. Yeah. So how did he get there? And he's not unbound no he's just there to do this job see if he can get this job done so you know going by the logic of the other one how is pinhead here did he get called by someone else murder them and then say before i go back i've got to go and talk to this well, guy no, i think that uh, the leviathan has given him the power sent him back to yeah he's sent him to to earth to try and do this job because he then says well he says before that the the representative of leviathan says all right, go, go and make a gospel, and then this next page you see him in the real world, so as if he's come out. Yeah, that makes sense. You're right. Yeah. So there you go. So he's back on Earth, um, talking to this guy, and then we cut to Kirsty Cotton. Ooh, yeah. 
And it's not, you know, Kirsty the girl. It is properly as she would be nowadays. She's, you know, in a... Yep, it's it's as she would be now. And she looks she looks like the lovely Ashley Lawrence, doesn't she? She does. And she's an artist. Which is, again, like the lovely Ashley Lawrence. <laughs> it is. Just the same as her. An artist. And she's got a fella called Edgar. Mm. Who's pushing to marry her. Yeah, but she's she's not really keen to go there. No, she's a bit damaged. She's a bit tortured. Her, yeah. Her paintings are paintings of... Pinhead. I know, yeah, she's got a painting of Pinhead in the room, which is a bit worrying. Yeah, she's she's trying to work out all this horror and so she obviously, terror yeah, through still, her work. It's still with her. So after a quite a rude scene between the two of them... <laughs> a sex scene, you mean, Peter? That's right, Phil, that's right, <laughs> yeah. I've, yeah. He goes off for a week. Yeah, he's a writer, isn't he? Yeah, and he's so going off on, on a book tour and to do some talks. And then as, as we the last shot we see of her in this comic, there's a photograph from the Chenard Institute of her and Tiffany together. Yeah, which is kind of, I'm in my mind, sort of at the end of Hellbound, you know, when they're leaving. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, it's a good, good, good page because, you know, you've got Kirsty looking uh, resolute and lots of pills. She obviously takes lots of pills to yeah, keep her... Yeah, it's a gorgeous page, that. Keep her mind in check. Uh, and then we have um, Samuel turn up in his car. And leave a note. Yeah, he puts an envelope in her mailbox just with harrowers. Harrowers. Mmm. And we do get a glimpse of the house that she lives in. And it does look like the house from the first two Hellraiser films. The first one especially. Now, it doesn't say specifically that it is that house. But if it isn't, she's certainly living in one that looks like it. Because also, it's not. it was never really certain where that house was set, as we talked about. Is it in London? Is it in America? Yeah. No one's really sure. I don't know. The country of the imagination. I don't think she's going to get over all... Is that a good thing, to live in that house? She certainly to wouldn't... get over all know. this? She couldn't get much closure if she lived in the house <laughs> where her dead uncle tried to rape her and then killed her dad. Yeah. Well, maybe that's good, though. I don't know. I'm no... What? I don't think that's a good thing. I'm no psychiatrist, Peter, as okay. you well know. <laughs> Fair enough. So we've had the name Harrowers mentioned. Now, are people who are familiar with the old comics... The old Hellraiser comics will have met Harrowers before. They appeared in some of the Clive Barker's Hellraiser comics that Epic put out, and then there was the Harrowers six-part comic arc of their own. Yeah, they've been mentioned a few times. The the concept of the Harrowers. Yeah. So originally the Harrowers were people that were sent into Hell to try and basically kill Cenobites and free the damned. And that it's not exactly what it is here. Now we've got a group of sort of survivors of the box who have gathered together to destroy other puzzles and other gateways into hell. Mm. And they're like a little gang. Which is really cool. Yeah, it's a brilliant. great idea. So these are the people that they spoke of, the female Cenobites spoke of originally, um, who are basically tracking down puzzle boxes or puzzles mm. and taking them out of commission. Yeah. So issue two begins with a meeting of these people because this envelope that she was given has pictures of what appears to be another puzzle. Now, this is the interesting thing that we haven't really seen much in the films is the idea of different objects being puzzles that open the gateway. In the films, it's pretty much always the box. But now we very much get the idea that it can be anything. I mean, this was expanded in the, the other comics, the epic comics as well. But it's quite blatant. I mean, this one is like a toy carousel. Yeah, which is brilliant. It's got like millipedes on it. Yeah, it's got weird like things instead of horses. 
And it, it's that's such a great idea because I can think of, you know, you can then think of going into an antique shop and finding some weird little curiosity and mm. thinking, well, that looks cool, you know, and it being all strange. Yeah. And then you mess about with it a bit and then <laughs> all hell breaks loose. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's brilliant. I love it. Yeah, me too. It's really good. It's a lovely idea. So they work out where this carousel is and they're going to go off and destroy it to destroy the portal into hell so that no one else will get sucked down into it. And then we find out they've got some weapons to do this. And a little note that Kirsty's got that was written to her, signed HD, who at the moment we don't know who that is. I think it becomes clear later on that it's Harry Damore. <gasps> oh. Oh. And if you're not a sort of big Clive Barker fan, you would just read that and think, oh, I'll work out who that is later on. And if you, if you do know the sort of mythology and if you've read his books and, you know, Lord of Illusions and things like that, you, you might get that straight away. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't work it out until later on. I assumed it was someone else I hadn't heard of. But then I'm not terribly quick on the uptake with comics. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so they've, um, they're a bit worried at this point that this might be a trap. Yeah. This note. Because, yes, who, they don't know who it was that gave them this information as to where this thing is. Mm. But they've got their um, glyph of vulnerability mm-hmm. and a gun. And a gun. Yeah, and the glyph is sort of lots of symbols mm. that they can draw or paint on the floor and it sort of it turns into a bit of a quasi-religious ceremony basically to destroy these things yeah so this is really cool i mean this this i'm loving you know yeah. they're turning up in cars they they kidnap the family basically well they tie them up yeah you know and the family don't know who the hell they are what's yeah. going on they think they're bad people they think they're bad people who are going to rob them or murder them and they don't realize that they're gonna basically call up hell and destroy it. Yeah, and they're there to save them, really, just in case they were to open the carousel by accident. Yeah, and this is great. You know, I love it using guns and uh, ancient glyphs. That, yeah, you know that they got and magic, and it's brilliant, brilliant. Well, again, going sort of back to Lord of Illusions briefly, it's that sort of you know detective style set in the Hellraiser world, which is great fun. Yeah, it's always really interesting. And so they manage to open the carousel, and these Cenobites turn up. Hmm who are nothing like we've seen before. No. And this is great. Yeah. This is so cool. Because one of them's like a kind of spider made out of glass. Yeah. The other one's like a kind of millipede monster with yeah, a you face. Can't, you can't describe these. You've got to see them. Huge but they are brain thing. Yeah, big monsters. Yeah. And they're pretty scary. I mean, you certainly wouldn't want to meet them. No. <laughs> You wouldn't. And what they say is really interesting yeah. because they turn up and they know who they are, the harrowers. Yeah. They're like, ah, these are the meddlers. If everyone, you know, and you get this whole thing of in hell, you know, the Cenobites talking about these things to each other. And they particularly point out Kirsty and say, ah, this is her. This is the one. Yeah. And they say, the priest has talked about you. Yeah. So they refer to Pinhead as the priest, which yeah. actually he was referred to in an early draft of the first Hellraiser script. Uh huh. So there you are, the priest favours her. And then when she says, the priest, and it sort of reminds her by, reminds us by showing little drawings from the first Hellraiser film, in which it really looks like Ashley Lawrence in one of these pictures. It's brilliant. Because she's older, so she would look a bit different in the actual story, but in this one drawing of her sat on the floor, it looks just like her. Yeah. And also the iconic image of Chatterer putting his fingers into her mouth is there as well. Mm. And this is the bit for me. I went, oh, yeah. <laughs> My sort of fanboy exploded at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I 
this is great. So these two Cenobites kind of have a bit of a dialogue here about, well, we shouldn't do anything bad to her because the priest wants her. Yeah. So you're going, oh, the priest mm-hmm. wants her. But then they go for it anyway because they're Yeah, they're, well, they try and crazy. go for it anyway. Yeah, so they, they shoot the hooks out with the chains and miss most of them, get one of them. Yeah, they're not very accurate with these chains, are they? Well, you don't know whether they're try- just toying with them. Perhaps. Yeah, maybe. Toying but then them. one of them has a, one of the harrowers has a dagger that looks like a, you know, a special, it's a special harrowing dagger, and manages to stab one of them in the face. Well, this is great. I mean, here as well, what one of them says is really interesting to me. Like, he says, um, as he's sort of grabbing hold of one of them, the the Cenobite says, the embrace of a thousand arms, float and fly and fall, I'll make you a cloud, and oh, shall you thunder. Yeah. So that's like, what? What? Oh, this is so cool. Yeah. You know, the, what do these Cenobites do to you? And what goes on? And, and what do they well, What do they do to you? But what do they think they're doing to you as yeah, well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just amazing. But yeah, as you say, she she gets the dagger and she stabs it in the face. Yeah, well, she grabs a dagger, gives it to the guy, and he stabs the thing in the head. And mm. then they manage to cut the chains. Mm-hmm. And then Kirsty manages to get the the other one. She defeats the other Cenobite by dinging a, a tuning fork. But I wasn't sure, it's actually not really clear if, if they brought that with her or if it was already there, because there was a shot of a piano and it sort of fell over earlier on. Yeah, I think it was already there. So how does she know that this would work? I don't know. No, I don't know either. But I just think it makes, I just think it's really cool. It is, because also, because he's made of glass, well, sort of like spider glass, she yeah. sort of shatters him, really. Yeah. That's just really awesome. I just oh, it's really amazing. like it. Yeah, yeah. I sort of think that that's really good because it, she didn't know what Cenobites were going to turn up and no. she just thinks on her feet mm. and she uses this thing. And because they've got the vulnerability glyph there, it works. And it's implying that they've done this quite a few times, so she's used to sort of looking at the situation, weighing it up, and then choosing what weapon would be best to dispatch them. Mm. Which is excellent. So then, uh, basically, they've got to get out of there. Yeah, and she's happy because they've saved the family. Mm-hmm. No. 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 They go over downstairs, and the family's been ripped apart. Yeah, they're all hanging from the roof by chains, including the, the little boy. The little boy, all oh, face really ripped open, grim. Yeah, and then we go back to hell briefly, and Pinhead is sort of saying, "That's right, don't worry about it. Close one, create another." Yeah, because the female Cenobite, it's like, well, that ours is the last device. Now. Yeah, the box is the last thing to open hell, and she says their fortunes lately seem almost orchestrated. And Pinhead's like, "Hmm, mm. yes." <laughs> So then Kirsty takes back a little horse from the carousel and places it amongst what appears to be lots of other objects that have been gateways into hell that they have destroyed over the years. So she's keeping a little memento of each one to remind her. And then issue two ends with Edgar at the airport. He's about to get on a plane to go on his lecture tour, the lecture circuit. And then we see there's someone sort of following him and it's Samuel Hess who's got the puzzle box in his luggage. Mm, that's really cool because you see it through the uh, X-ray. X-ray. Yeah, there's some really inventive ways of portraying things in these comics. It's, it's brilliant. This is Ashley Lawrence. You're listening to the Hellraiser podcast. Yeah, it's really good. And so on to issue three, part three, which opens with Pinhead making a little speech to the female Cenobite and Chatterer. In hell, which is amazing, I think. Yeah, he's in the skeleton of some kind of huge beast. Yeah. And above him, making the ceiling, is the spine and sort of the ribs coming out and into the floor. And this is being juxtaposed with Edgar, who's making a speech at a lecture hall. 
talking about the Dream Sea. Mm. And anyone familiar with Clive Barker's novels will know that the Dream Sea has been mentioned before as a place called Quiddity, which is where you can sort of you can go and swim around in it if you want, and it's this other mythical land or not land sea. But it's it's very interesting that they've brought this idea back into Hellraiser. So you're not quite sure where this is going. This also ties into Harry Damore a little. So you do you're thinking there is a crossover here into Clive Barker's other work. Yeah, which is really great. Mm. And then we cut on to yeah, and then issue three is is mainly about the Harrowers and the the four of them, and it shows how they became Harrowers. Mm. The harrowing, the harrowing of the different people. So the first one is Marcus Ames, who was a priest, and he's left this little snow globe in the confessional. I love it because the person who leaves it is is really like, I'm really sorry they made me pass yeah. it on, and you're just like, what? What's the matter? It's all right. <laughs> It's a little snow globe, yeah. And then it starts to snow inside the church, mm. and this horrible Cenobite turns up. Yeah. This rotting Cenobite. Yeah, and this is um, like nothing we've seen before. Another no. different sort of Cenobite. Yeah, just another sort of scary monster. This one's a bit more humanoid than the ones we met previously. And this is great, what he's talking about here, because the priest is sort of saying, God, protect me, you know, and he's like, God's not there. Hell is what remains after God fled paradise. So he's like, there's no devil, there's no God, there's just lonely void. Yeah. And he's just all about just nothing other than frost and cold and shivering. But the priest does manage to dispatch him using Jesus, just not in a spiritual way. He actually makes a huge statue of Jesus on the cross fall onto the Cenobite and smash him into bits. Yeah. Which is fun. Which is great. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna use Jesus <laughs> in these stories, then why not? Yeah, that's really good. Uh, and then he dashes off in complete frenzy and immediately runs into a tattoo shop and gets this tattoo guy to tattoo every symbol yeah. of every religion, basically, on him. Because he's like, I need all the help I can get. Yeah, because he says he saw the devil. Mm. He said it wasn't the devil of my god. And if that was even a small glimpse of hell, then as a priest, I can tell you that this one god won't suffice. And then tattoo is like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. And then he gets drunk, and it's implying that he's been doing this for a while. And who happens to be in this bar on this particular day? But it's Kirsty. Yeah. So you sort of it's sort of implied that she's sought him out, you know. Because mm. it sort of I get the idea, I get the impression that this guy's been drunk and he's been mouthing off in the bar and saying, "I've seen hell, I've seen the devil in there. Give me <laughs> yeah. another drink." And then she's like, "Well, have you? Because I have, and we could get together and help each other." Yeah, absolutely. Again, it's great to have all this richness, all these stories, all these little brushes with hell and stuff like that. It's just so good. I really love it. It just really, yeah, it really fleshes out the whole universe, the whole Hellraiser universe. It just makes the whole thing more real, really. Yeah. So then we move on to the the other lady harrower, other than Kirsty. This is the harrowing of Bethany Howard. Mm. It turns out that she was a lady of the night. Yes, an escort. That's right. And she's with... uh, a client kind of, uh, sort of antiques dealer yeah and uh, he's kind of a bit flash got a bit of money mm-hmm. and he's like she's... and he's got this music box yeah and she wants to have a little look at it so he's like yeah have a quick look at it and then let's get on with it <laughs> <laughs> but she opens it she does yeah and it's made by La Marchand oh dear yeah so he was a busy boy it turns out yeah which is great you know that he's been making all these different things and another new Cenobite turns up. 
who's sort of half he's a, a man shape and half of him is sort of exposed and there's like clockwork stuff going on and cogs and things whirring around mm, i really like the idea of that yeah this is sort of a steampunk type cenobite isn't he yeah it's amazing yeah he has the power to reach inside people and then crush bits of their body in between his whirring cogs yeah and his gears which is so inventive and so he cool. grabs this guy's heart and squashes it in his in his gears and things. Yeah, and you actually see the you know the rusty gears and the heart yeah. being squished, and it's really really brilliant. And then he turns to her, and he's about to do the same to her, but then instead he grabs something else out of her. He actually grabs her fetus that's in her stomach. She doesn't know she's pregnant, mm. and it grabs this fetus and then squashes it in amongst his whirring innards, which is really horrible. Yeah. Yeah, and he's got his little limbs dangling. Ooh. And she's very upset by this. And then the Cenobite just goes. He, that, he's, that's it. He's, he's had enough now. Yeah, he wasn't there for her. No. Or was he? Or did mm, he just, you know, knows. he had that guy. That was enough. But it's, it's really good, this one, because he's, he's just completely in control, you know, and he's very yeah. much like, yeah, well, you'll be back. You'll see us again. Mm. And it's really quite yeah, graphic. She leaves, and, and he just is just watching her go. And he says, yeah. Go. Another fantastic image here of her running out of this building, you know, bleeding yeah. profusely, and it's it's leaving a trail of blood wherever she goes. Very graphic. Yeah, and then she collapses, wakes up in hospital, and Kirsty's there. Aha! Revenge. And so she's Kirsty's got another soldier in the fight against the Cenobites. Mm. And the fourth person that makes up the four harrowers, we're now told about Alexander Price, and the harrowing of him is. Well, it is quite harrowing. <laughs> it Actually, is. This one's really, really nasty. This one starts with a brilliant couple of images, I think. Yeah. He's running into a clearing, and the female Cenobite is there, and his brother is basically being pulled into the box yeah. on chains. Yeah. How amazing is that? I know. What a great idea. What a, oh, just so good. It's, it's horrible. Yeah, the box is there. It's sort of suspended, and the, his little brother is suspended by chains in his hands. And he, yeah, he gets sucked into it. And all you see is the last image is this hand disappearing into the box. And this is just so cool because basically she decides, the female Cenobite decides that she's going to take him as a servant. Yeah. As an engineer to move the boxes around, to give the boxes to people, to give the puzzles to people. Uh, a facilitator. And if he does that, then yeah. he can see his brother every time he gets the box again. And if he doesn't, his brother will be burned up. Yeah. And this is just awesome. And she scars his face as well. Yeah. It's just to like help smashing him. his glasses onto his head. Yeah, remember who he belongs to. Mm. And this is just brilliant because, you know, she's just completely... The look on her face in these, in these pictures is brilliant. She's just completely, like, has no emotion. Mm. And he's this poor little boy who's kind of like, oh, yes, mum, you know, don't <laughs> hurt him anymore. And she's like, mm, yes. <laughs> So then it turns out that this guy has actually been an agent of the box and has been, or the box, the puzzles, and he's been giving people these puzzles over the years just so he can see his brother again. Yeah, and then you get a great montage yeah. of him giving the, the boxes and puzzles to people. He gives the snow globe. Yeah, it was him in the confessional the in the, earlier on. And, he, and, and also cutting to him seeing his brother... Yeah. dangling and from the box. And his brother keeps saying, you can't keep doing this, you're hurting people. Yeah. And uh, he goes through, you know, his whole life growing up 
and there's just some very weird bits and bobs here. There's a bit with it where he's with like some dominatrix, and you sort of get the impression because yeah. he says this will be the last time, and she says so they all say until the scars heal, and I'm just like. Has he also been seeing a dominatrix? <laughs> well, why not? I don't know, you know. But it's all just little tiny things. There's so many great images in these in these books that, and, uh, that are just very quick, but they give you a lot to think about. Yeah, yeah. And um, anyway, his brother is basically at this point going, look, I'm dead. If you love me, let me die. Yeah, it's been 20 years since he was first sucked into the box. Yeah, don't do this. And he, so he says to the female Cenobite, look, I can't do this anymore. And she's not having any of it. No. And then he's going to give the box to another little couple of children. Yeah. And he finally realises. Thinks about his brother and thinks, what I'm doing is worse than letting my brother burn up. There's just so many great details here. Because like his brother's kind of saying, like, look, this is horrible. I don't want to be here anymore. There's monsters in the dark and they're eating things <laughs> and stuff. And you're like, what is going on? Like his brother is in hell for 20 years, just yeah. kind of chained up. Occasionally seeing his brother and going, please stop doing this. <laughs> I want to die. Or I want to be tortured forever. I don't know. I mean, just brilliant. Brilliant. But yeah, he meets Kirsty. And she says, listen, come on, let's undo yeah. all this bad stuff that you've done. We're going to help. We're going to find the people whose lives you've ruined and help them. And he agrees to go along. Excellent. So that's the that's the backstories on the guys yeah. and girls. So you um, immediately know exactly who they are and what they're all about. And I just think that's really cool. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. I really like that. It's a really great history. And uh, yeah, then we cut back to Edgar doing his book signing. Yeah. And he meets uh, Samuel Hess. Turns out for the book signing. Who um, leaves him the box. Mm-mm. Oh, oh dear. dear. And Edgar takes it away with him, as you would. Mm. And he ends up accidentally opening it in a cab, a New York cab. Mm. And a chain immediately shoots out straight through the driver's head, which is brilliant. And he's And the last page of this issue is the cab being whirled up into the air. Yeah, hoisted up in the air. Yeah, and taking Edgar with it. Kind of reminds me of Spider-Man 3, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. How depressing. that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, awesome. Really good. Love this issue. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. Love the way that they're bringing in all the different elements of, you know, Clive Barker's work, as you pointed out. Yeah. Little bits, fleshing out the world of Hellraiser and just bringing it all together. And it doesn't seem silly. It all seems real. No, and for a fan, it's a complete joy. But I think it is accessible to those who don't really know anything about the backstory. You would, If you didn't know anything about it, you'd be reading it and every now and again you think, oh, I don't know who that is, maybe I should know who that is. But most of it, you kind of, sort of get the idea. Absolutely. I think, I think if I read this, if I was a bit younger and I read this, I'd love it. And then I'd go and try and find everything else. Yeah, which is I'd brilliant. go and try and find all the other comics and all the films and yeah. a new Hellraiser fan would be born. Well, let's hope it does that for some people. Some people who are big comic fans who have stumbled across this and really enjoy it, and then it makes them go back and watch the films and read the books and things. Absolutely. And again, artwork is brilliant, really yeah. good. I think it just... So far, they've just been total quality, all these stories. Yeah, Really absolutely. good. And I'm really pleased and happy that they're doing it. <laughs> yeah, me too. Oh. Right, good. So let's move on to the last one we're going to talk about today, which is uh, part four. Pursuit of the Flesh, part four. So this wraps up the Pursuit of the Flesh storyline. So we begin with the cab, which has been sort of chained up on the bridge, Mm -hmm. and Edgar's dead. 
Oh dear. Yes, and the box has been thrown from the vehicle, and it's on the floor, and we see someone coming out of a little underground thing underneath the bridge, having yeah. a bit of a look at the box and, and, the box and taking is, it. is sort of half open. And this is very interesting, I think. Yeah. Because he basically, you know, he's running through the subway tunnels, and he comes to like a sort of underground civilization of um, tramps, basically, of um, yeah. hobos or it's whatever a, you yeah, want to call them. Yeah, underground homeless network of people that live there which i think is a really cool idea because this is real i've, I've seen a couple of documentaries about this about people who live yeah. in the subway systems and they basically have got homes mm. and things and this is a little bit more stylized because they've yeah. got a king so um basically this this kid is the son of the king <laughs> and he's brought a treasure for his dad who's sitting on a throne he's got a crown and everything yeah a kind of throne of of like junk yeah, it just looks awesome. Just so many, again, so many great questions are brought up in your mind, and ah, oh, just love it. Yeah, this is great. And then we also have uh, Kirsty looking at the dead body. Yeah, she's identifying the body of Edgar. Yeah, and she finally agrees to marry him. But a bit late, too late. Yeah, I'm afraid. Yeah. So the Harrowers have a bit of a meeting where they're like, right, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? We've we've got to find out what's going on here. There's a plot. Why has Edgar been killed? And then she sort of says, you know, I've got to do this now. And then they point out, you know, this used to be about saving people, not revenge. And then she says, let's not fool ourselves. This has always been about revenge. Mm. And then Alex has comes up with a plan of how to find out who killed Edgar. Yeah, who gave him the box? That's yeah. the thing. Kirsty gets annoyed and goes off and she says, I'm going to search for mm-hmm. whoever's got the box now. And they're thinking, well, who gave him the box? And they've got a little plan. So then we see Kirsty searching around the site where Edgar was killed. And she finds the opening into the underground world. Mm -hmm. And the king has got the box. And he's like, "Uh uh-oh, this is a thing of great power. Get rid of it. Yeah, Take it out of here. And his son's a bit like, what? Oh, no. And then they hear Kirsty coming along. Yeah, because of their rudimentary alarm system, which is made up of pipes and a gramophone speaker, which is great. That's brilliant. Yeah. I love it. So lots of intercutting. We cut back to um, Marcus and Alex in Mm -hmm. the hospital, basically going to have a look at Edgar's body, and they use this brilliant device. Yeah. This is, again, quite steampunky. Hmm. Old school. It's a mask. Harrower thing. Yeah. Yeah, mask. It's two masks, really, isn't it? Yeah, you wear one. And it's got sort of um, goggles on it. That's the steampunky one. And then the other one is like a beautiful kind of... Yeah, like a Venetian Venetian mask. mask. With spikes on the inside of it that you put into people's eyes. Yeah, so you put that through... They actually stab that into Edgar's eyes. And then Marcus can see what he saw in his last moments. So he sees the name and the person who passed him the box. So they got it. Brilliant. So they know who, who they know who it was. They know who they wanna find Samuel Hess. Great scene. Yeah, really good. I just keep thinking, imagine if this was a film. I know. I would love it. <laughs> I would love it. And then we go back to the underground world and the boy closes the box. Yeah, the dad's like, Give go her on. the box, get out of here, give her the box mm-hmm. and whatever you do, don't uh... Oops. <laughs> and suddenly hundreds of chains come flying out yeah. of every orifice <laughs> and they all get ripped apart except for the boy yeah amazing he rips his dad in 
yeah. half. Yeah, and that's a brilliant. So cool, and all these innocent people just get torn to shreds. Yeah, and then Pinhead, female Cenobite, and Chatterer are there, and they're um, kind of gloating over this a bit. Yeah, and saying, "Oh dear, what a shame." <laughs> so the boy runs away. And Kirsty's looking for him because she can hear him shouting, help me, help me. There's chains flying out of pipes at Kirsty. And then... <laughs> this bit's <whoa>. amazing. <laughs> then, yeah, the chains come across the train track as a train is coming. And they're so strong that they rip through the train as it's travelling and slice everyone inside to pieces. Yeah, and these are just brilliant drawings. You've just got people sitting on the train, yeah. reading the paper, and the top of their heads just severed oh, off. Amazing. You know, all these people sliced to pieces. Really cool. Imagine that in a film. <laughs> <laughs> you have to stop saying that. I know, I can't help because it. Because it's just unfortunate this is never going to be a film. Well, you never know. And then, yeah, then the train crashes and explodes. Yeah, and uh, Kirsty's kind of walking through the remnants of all these people. Mm. And uh, she finds the boy. She does. And the boy's tied up with chains. He's not been ripped apart, though. But he's there. He's suspended in the air. And Pinhead is there. Mm. The other side of a sort of little river of sewage. Yeah. And this is it. Kirsty and Pinhead. Together at last. Meet again. It (laughs) looks great. You. Yeah. It looks really cool. Pinhead looks amazing. Looks brilliant. It's gorgeous. And then they have a chat. They have this great bit of dialogue where... He says, you know, I've missed you. And she's like, you murdered everyone. And he's like, oh, come on. (laughs) (laughs) That's a very simplified way of putting it. (laughs) Yeah, it's a bit more poetic than that. (laughs) Yeah. Good job I wasn't writing this one. Yeah. But yeah, this is where Pinhead basically is putting doubt in her mind about what her life is. He's basically saying that she wouldn't wouldn't be anything if it wasn't for this pursuit of the the box and these puzzles. Absolutely. And uh, yeah. We kind of leave on a on a moment of uh, Pinhead saying, "Well, there's salvation for you, Kirsty, and for me." And she's a bit intrigued by this. She's not sure what's going on, but Absolutely. Pinhead has left the boy alive, and he manages to escape. Yeah, it's really horrible this moment because the boy kind of she's like, "Come back with me to the surface," and he's like, "No, I, I've got to go and take care of the people who might be alive." Uh, maybe yeah. you should have just let him take me and be better than this. And you're just like, oh my God, you know, yeah. everybody that this kid ever known is dead, basically. So yeah, she got so, the box. Yeah. Even though she managed to save him, she still got the idea that she is leaving people in this world just completely miserable and bereft of anything. Yeah, wherever she goes, you know, death is following yeah. and uh, it doesn't work out very well for her. No. Or anyone else. So she gets a coffee. <laughs> as as you do, because she needs to sit down and chill out. She gets a message on her unspecified smartphone, <laughs> and it's a it's a picture message, and the picture is the three other harrowers tied up, gagged, beaten, bleeding, and written on them, "Bring the box." Ooh. Oh dear! How exciting is this? I know, and that's the cliffhanger. So there we are. That is Pursuit of the Flesh. So let's just talk a little about how you felt when you first heard that there was a new Hellraiser comic coming out, which was co-written by Clive Barker. Because I remember being really excited about it, but also a bit wary, having no idea where it would go and what would be in it. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I was wary in the sense that 
I'm such a big fan of Hellraiser that I just was hoping that nothing could go wrong, mm-hmm. that it wasn't going to, you know, that it, where would it go? What would it be about? And yeah, what characters would it be about? And from based off the other Hellraiser comics, I thought it was going to be about things around. Yeah, me too. I thought it would know. be self-contained stories. It would and be... I wasn't expecting a long story arc, and I was very pleasantly surprised that it was because I really enjoy long stories in comics rather than just. Yeah, I think after after so many films and things, you know, dealing with other aspects of the Hellraiser universe that aren't connected. Yeah, to 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 be given a comic series that directly carries on the story. Yeah, written by the guy who started it all in the first place, and uh, Christopher Monfair was obviously a very talented writer. Just to to have that and it deal directly with what you want, especially because it's following on from the first two films, which are our favourite two films. Yeah, and I know that's not everyone's opinion, but it is a lot of people's opinions. I think the majority of people like either the first or the second one best. It seems. Yeah, I mean, I I think this couldn't have been better for me because I think if we were just sitting having a conversation and you'd said, <laughs> they're going to make a new Hellraiser comic, what would you like it to be about? I would say, you know, I would have said, oh, I'd love it to have Kirsty in it and be about, yeah, Pinhead and be about Pinhead and be about, like, what is Pinhead going to do now? And, you know, for it to be a real getting back to that story. The, that's the other thing. It's really good that this is about Pinhead because, as we've said so many times before, a lot of the f- later films, he's barely in them and they just shove him on the front of the DVD to sell it. But he's hardly in the film. Where this is actually about him and about Kirsty. Yeah, and it's a real character piece. You can see the pain that Kirsty's going through. And Pinhead, in a way, in a yeah. different way. You know, he, he he wants things. He is a character. He he has a plan. He's doing things to Kirsty in this series. You know, he's changing events and it's so interesting to to get to spend more time with these characters. Yeah. And for it to be illustrated so well that, you know, I mean, film is my main medium that I love, but... Yeah, I think... I'm, me too, really. I can kind of play the film in my head, <laughs> looking at Well, I comic. always do. I mean, that's what I do. Reading these comics, and I've reread them over and over again, because I enjoy them so much. I do... It does play out like a film in my head. Mm. Especially the bit with the train. <laughs> yeah. I can just see that. It looks brilliant. That's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. But that's another compliment to the, the artists of these. They're so well drawn you can immediately you know picture them it's not sort of abstract pictures where and i'm not saying that all comics have to be you know realistically drawn or but it's nice that you can imagine you know exactly what what is happening and everything moving yeah it's a brilliant it's really well done quality series you know yeah and it really i'm so glad after all this stuff that hellraiser fans have been through of things that were good and not quite so good and some people like this one and some people didn't like this one that this series has come you know because as you say there isn't going to be another hellraiser film that continues this story with kirsty and no. pinhead so here it is this is what we've got and and i love it yeah it's a shame because doug bradley would do it ashley lawrence would probably do it clive bark would probably do it if he had the budget <laughs> but no one's going to give him the money maybe we should try and raise it <laughs> Let's try and raise a hundred million dollars. Yeah, and give it to Clive Barker to make this film. Okay, that's our next challenge. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of Clive Barker, some of you might be aware that he's actually not been very well recently. If anyone follows him on Twitter, you might know that he, after a rather worrying incident at a dentist, he got toxic shock syndrome, was in a coma for a bit. It seemed. 
Yeah, he's but, been he's been very unwell. He has, but he seems to be on the mend now. So, so we just we just want to wish him well and all the best for the future. We hope you get better soon, Clive. Yeah, if you're listening, get well soon, Clive. And yeah. you know that comes from us, and it comes from the whole, you know, community, fan community. We are all really rooting for you to get Absolutely. better as soon as possible. Yeah, he just seems to be on the mend though, so that's good. Yeah. Right, so that kind of wraps up our discussion about Pursuit of the Flesh, the four-issue story. And the next podcast, we are going to carry on, and we're just going to finish the story arc that goes from issue one to eight, and the second half of that, issues five to eight, are called Requiem, parts one to four. Mm. So our next podcast will be about those. I can't wait for that. I can't either, Phil. Yeah. And we're also hoping to have a very special interview as well, which will go alongside the next podcast. But we'll say no more now, Mm. just in case it all goes wrong. (laughs) Yes. So, in the meantime, thank you very much again for listening. We really appreciate everyone who listens to us. And, you know, get on on board the forums and the websites and the Twitter and the Facebook and all that. And let us know what you think about the new comics, because, I mean, I know that people are enjoying them. Mm. But let's, let's get a chat going. We're glad we can talk about them. Yeah. So until next time... Thanks, Phil. Thanks, Peter. And we'll see you soon. Bye. Goodbye, all.